Aloha. I can't remember what this one's called yet. I'll think of a good title. <laughs> I forgot I should think of the title first. Hey, apologies for taking so long between podcasts. I mean, America's, well, you know, we've all been in such pain. It's just hard to focus on the self. It's tragic and beautiful that we have come together to change America. I've been in awe watching, just watching the masses of peaceful protesters marching for change. I feel like it's going to happen. I don't want to be too positive too soon, but I I really feel like it's gotten so bad and so many people are standing up now. I feel like change is is coming. It's going to happen. Thank you if you're marching for change and and pre-mahalo for everybody who's going to vote this November. Feels like the most important time. I know everybody says that, but it really does feel like the most important time. And tonight's show is going to be a little different. Um, it, I had I kind of got down deep into some real personal stuff, so I decided not to make it, um, you know, fun and questiony and uh, just do one serious one. But then I promise that I'm going to record this week. Uh, I won't wait a whole week. I'll record another very very soon. Our same old format with answering questions and having fun and hearing from you guys. I love hearing from you guys. It, it makes it way more fun for me to know it's about all of us, not just me. And I was going to do a chronology of childhood to adulthood friends that helped me to shape my world of liberalism. But it's a bit too on the nose with the kind of the diversity that uh, got I got to experience through life. Not like big cities. I guess I was really lucky to grow up in a teeny tiny city that had diversity Um, but I'll go for some gut-wrenching personal history instead yep that's why today's podcast will be very different no guess no questions Veronica Moreno asked about an event that happened in Todd's book something very difficult in our relationship but there are a few tough times So I'm going to get to that very soon, but I feel like I need to do precursor with a a tough time that happened before that. So you can't say everything in every book. Now you might hear some papers rustling because I kind of wrote a bunch of thoughts down. I I wanted to get this right because it was just too personal and and also I was probably afraid I would ramble. So let's get a sip of water. Mm -hmm. Sparkling water tonight. My Sausalito nursery school moms were my best buddies. They really liked Todd, but they didn't like that in public he pretended he didn't care about me. I mean, he was never mean. It's just he didn't want anyone to think he was, uh, my words, committed to or singularly aligned to or tied to one particular person. I don't, I never asked. I was too in love. He didn't want us to be thought of as a couple. I know that's, it's weird, but you know, he's weird. Now that sounds terrible, but I knew the truth and I accepted him for the brilliant, talented weirdo that he was. 
I was so in love that I squashed all my feelings of wanting everybody to know I was Todd's girl. (laughs) I mean, he even played it down with the entire band on the road. Of course, there were people in our lives that knew the extent of our love. I mean, the band could, you know, would catch him, you know, being goofy with me or sneaking, holding my hand, you know, thinking nobody could see that. But there were people that knew, that really knew us, like Danny and Rachel, Auntie Lisa Asta, she knew, the Presidio Hill School parents, the nursery school moms. I mean, when you go, when you start working in the schools, you know, as parents with all your kids, it's easy to see, you know, what families are very loving and love each other. So those people knew. But on the outside world, he didn't want to display that. And I, and I didn't challenge it. Like I said, I, I, was, I was too in love. He didn't like, oh, the nursery school moms didn't like that he pretended to be indifferent about me in public. Now, his mom and dad knew, and my mom and dad knew, you know, how we felt about each other. Um, actually, my mom and dad had to take my word for it. <laughs> yeah, his mom and dad were around us in Woodstock. But, yeah, my mom and dad were so good about just having the faith. I mean, can you imagine your daughter saying, I'm getting a divorce, I'm moving to L.A., and then a few <laughs> months later... I'm moving in with this guy and his girlfriend and two kids, one of whom is less than a year old. Yeah. And her girlfriend. Yeah, they were so great that they just accepted that. I've said it before. (laughs) Okay, my parents had to take my word for it. So here's an example. It's the Nearly Human Tour, Seattle. My parents, my aunts, some other family members all drove up from all all parts of Oregon to Seattle. Some of them, it's a four and a half hour drive. Some of them, it's a seven hour drive. You know, you've all done that. But these are adults that don't normally go to shows. I mean, my aunts hadn't been to any concerts in their life that I knew of. So after the show, Todd went to the bus and refused to meet them. I didn't understand. What's, why? I pushed and pushed and pushed. I mean, I went to the bus and I just like, why? What's up? What's there here to meet you? And he yelled at me, which he hadn't done up until that point since we'd been together. He even threw a pillow, not at me. He just threw a pillow. That was our first fight. As I left the tour bus, go back into the venue and tell my parents he's not coming out. How's that going to go over? Oh, boy. Anyway, as I left the bus, I said, Todd, they didn't come to watch you or hear you sing. They don't even know you're famous. They just came to see who their Michelle chose to be with. And that was the truth. I... I couldn't believe he wouldn't just go say hello. Now, I didn't ride on the bus the next morning from Seattle to Portland. Maybe they left that night. Yeah, they left that night. Um, I was just too shook up. So the next morning, still shaken, I drove with my parents to Portland. Now, I insisted, uh, I'm going to drive. I'll drive. So my mom is in the front seat, 
um, and my dad's in the back seat. I was still in downtown Seattle when I blew a stop sign and was broadsided by an oncoming car. Parts and pieces and glass flew everywhere. And my mom was fine because she had her seatbelt on. And that was like way before it was hip to put a seatbelt on. But my dad from the back seat, um, I looked back and his head was bleeding badly. So somebody called an ambulance. They came and they strapped him down onto the gurney and took him away with sirens. Oh boy. So he went to the hospital for x-rays and stitches. I called Eric Gardner and he took care of everything. He just jumped in and told me what to do. I, I think he made plane reservations. I think we all flew to Portland, but in separate planes. I think my I flew early to try to make sound check and my parents flew later. Um, but I didn't make sound check. It was I was too late. And Eric had arranged for a masseuse in the hotel room because, you know, he said, since I've been in an accident, my muscles were all going to be messed up. And he was right. So that was amazing. Um, let's see, I'm looking, looking at the, my notes. Todd apologized for our fight. He explained that he felt he hadn't performed well in the show and in front of my relatives and he knew it was important to me and he just felt overwhelmed and felt inadequate, too embarrassed or too scared to meet them. But from then on, from then on, he changed the way he interacted with my family, with anyone from my family, always open, always engaging. So right before the Portland show started, <laughs> None of us could believe it. My parents took their seat in the audience. My dad has his head bandaged like a giant turban. And his face was all bruised and messed up. I, I just, I couldn't believe they came. I, Todd was blown away too. Dad was, you know, still came to the show. And during the show, uh, Todd introduced them from the stage, calling my dad Swami Gray. There's Swabby Gray. <laughs> and after the show backstage, I mentioned to Dad that, he, Dad, you didn't have to come. I mean, God, you got so injured. You should be resting. He said, yes, I had to come. You were in shock. I needed you to be okay and, to, and for you to have a good show. I knew if you saw me, you would be. And you were. You are. I love my parents. Even though they're both gone, I feel their love just like through their history of showing it over and over and over. I was a very, and am a very lucky girl. Okay, anyway, sorry, I'm going to sip my Perrier. Ah, it feels okay to get really emotional in front of you guys. Nobody's judged me for it yet. I'm going to keep going with just who I am. <laughs> I expect no less of you. <laughs> anyway, the not committed facade, except with my family and his family, took its toll. Because our relationship looked to the outside world uncommitted. It drew people in who tried to challenge it or to push me out of the picture. Behind closed doors, we were madly in love. 
I chose this podcast picture because it's one of the first taken as a showbiz couple. It's uh, at the Bammies in San Francisco. I was surprised when Todd put his hand on my on my ass in the press during the press photo session and and people that were performing at the Bammies you just kind of got shuffled through this room where you were taking pictures and taking pictures and since we came together um and I'll give photo credit online cuz I'm I had two beers before I sat down so I can't remember the photographer's name and he's done tons and tons of pictures in the Bay Area and he's really good and so he just shoved us in there, and I was shocked. Like, Todd puts his hand on my ass, and you can see me in the photo. You notice I'm just barely touching his coat as if to say, like, oh, he might be mine. I was trying to be very respectful of the fact that we don't normally show our relationship in public. But I love that picture because... We look like a rock star couple. I just like it. I love it. It's kind of the picture I'm going to send all my kids when we get really old and wrinkly, which could be any day now. (laughs) Okay. There was one exception to my public display of affection. Very early on in my relationship, we were in our relationship, we were walking down South Street in Philadelphia hand in hand. I think that was the... um, I don't remember if it was, it was probably acapella. So we ran into Bill Bricker on South Street and we dropped hands. But Bill just kind of has struck up a great conversation and then followed us into an art shop because it was right there. I mean, it was one of the things he would have done too. It had all these cool handmade things from Philadelphia artists and more. And Todd bought me my first real gift I mean for my birthday the first birthday we celebrated together you know he got me little cherry earrings and all those decorations in the hotel room but this was like the first oh it's amazing okay I'll have to take a picture of it and put it on on Facebook um but Bill was there it's a magic art basket It's still in our bedroom, and it houses my precious articles. um, Inside, I keep the two love letters Todd wrote me. I only have two. (laughs) The tiny little plastic doves from my parents' wedding cake. Rex's baseball card. The dirt from the Sausalito Little League field that Rex played on, that I coached. And a lock of each of the boys' hair. And I put colored lights inside it, too. So it's on a timer, and at nighttime it goes on, and it goes off uh, about, like, 1 or 2 o'clock. So, like, when we go to bed, it's, like, the the only colored light in the room. It's really, really tiny light, and, ah, it's great. Anyway, it's my, one of my prized possessions. So many years later, Bill Bricker told me a beautiful story about seeing us holding hands that day on South Street, that he wanted to feel that way about someone someday and would seek that. He worded it way cooler, but it meant a lot to me. I'll skip over the beautiful years in Sausalito, but I promise I'm going to touch on them again 
today I'm going for the jugular, the the tough times in life. Mm. So we had so much fun on Nearly Human Tour. I think it's one of my favorite tours ever. Life on stage and off was just <laughs> was just amazing. Every moment on stage was just like otherworldly. And I loved looking out in the audience, seeing all of you out there. I mean, you were all so invested in the music and you could see. Okay, I could I could see how open your hearts were. I've said it before, I couldn't look at you during pretending to care because your faces showed what your souls were experiencing. That sounds airy-fairy, and I'm not normally like that, but I'm heartfelt, so I, I felt like I felt what you were going through. So, And if I looked at you, I would start to cry. I literally, that happened to me a couple times. So I learned not to look at you during that song. Because when a singer cries, your throat closes up and you just freaking can't sing the right notes. So I close my eyes and let my soul feel and tingle and my voice soar through those beautiful notes. Ah, I still tingle when I hear that song. Just can't believe. Ah, I can't believe. I'm going to listen to that after this podcast. It's so, so beautiful. Okay. Back to reality. Near the end of the Nearly Human tour, Jenny Maldara kept asking Shandy and I odd, odd questions about her husband, my boyfriend, Shandy's boyfriend. Shandy and I answered all those stupid questions like, uh, yeah, yeah, we think your husband's hot too. Yeah, yeah, we would be attracted to him too, yeah. Um... And then she'd say, oh, I think your boyfriends are amazing, too. I would totally do them. I felt safe because she told us that, you know, she and Scott were trying to get pregnant and been trying for a while. Just too many weird questions. I should have been alert, but I was too happy. Nothing could harm my world. Nothing could harm my world. Todd and I had a huge Labor Day party. Um, we arranged it in Woodstock. It'd be uh, like the, the last week of the tour, I think. Everyone could come and camp on our property, bring your sleeping bags on the floor in every room of the house, every corner of the house, um, outside, on, on couches, stay in the little rent, stay in rentals all over and just come to the Woodstock house for the party hours. I personally cleaned and repainted and furnished like two sheds on our property. I got food and booze for the whole week for 80 people. 80 people would show up. Oh, we were so excited. Todd's family came up, Robin and Michelle, other friends from all over the U.S. Our lawyer, Howard, our accountant, Bruce. Mary Lou helped immensely, of course, because she lives in Woodstock. And Joel Turnabene would provide all the weirdos that I usually avoided. Uh, I think I told Joel stories before. Anyway, Joel was a Woodstock legend who lived in San Francisco. I knew him from the tubes too, and he helped us with Rex and Randy when Todd and I were on tour, but I never trusted him. He was just, he had um, a gentle streak and a vicious streak. 
So Todd told me I was paranoid about Joel. Bibi was there, and so was Liv, and Liv was still a girl. The pantry, or the party, sorry, the party kicked off splendidly. You can tell I wrote that. The party kicked off splendidly, and then I just go dot, 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 meaning just keep talking. It was so much fun. <laughs> the entire Nearly Human band was there. I stayed almost sober because there was so much hostessing to do, and I had Rex, Randy, and Bean there. you got to kind of watch all the family, all the guests. The magic mushrooms came out. I, I did not do magic mushrooms, but Todd did. I went to bed around 3 a.m., but the party was still going. Even though I hadn't had much to drink, I woke up in the middle of the night, I thought it was the middle of the night. I woke up throwing up on myself. I'd had a bad dream, and the dream made me throw up on myself. In reality, Todd wasn't in bed with me yet, and I had a terrible dream about what he was doing. I washed up and started looking through the passed-out bodies everywhere all over the house, calling his name, thinking I would find a passed-out Todd and help him to bed. I, I couldn't find him in the entire house. I couldn't find him outside. I couldn't find him anywhere, and it was starting to get light. I walked down to the studio, and I opened the door. It was all quiet, but there were pieces of clothing strewn about on the floor of the studio. And I started to walk up the stairs, and I saw pieces of clothing on the stairs. I opened the control room door and I interrupted a high as a as high as a kite Todd and someone else in foreplay. The girl who asked too many questions and comparisons between her husband and my boyfriend. I should have sensed it. Later, Shandy told me she hadn't sensed the danger that this girl posed either. I stood in the doorway of the studio control room, and they both stopped and sat back. The first thing out of my mouth, I think, was, Todd, you don't even like her. He was quiet. And then I looked at her and I said, and you, you told me you are trying to get pregnant. I was shaking. My body was shaking. I just stood there for a while in silence, but finally turned around, walked down the stairs holding on because I was afraid I was going to fall, and I went to the house. I got my coat and my purse, and I called Mary Lou to come get me and walk down to Mink Hollow Road so she could pick me up. I felt numb and sick, like I had no blood inside me and I couldn't get a full breath. Mary Lou took me to her house. I told her the story and I asked her to put on the be put on the first plane home to Sausalito. She tried to stall me and keep me in Woodstock. I understand now. I mean, you know, she wanted to take care of me rather than just let me go home and be alone with all the shit that had just happened. She even brought Rex and Randy over to her house in hopes that my maternal instincts would keep me there. 
That was the hardest thing to do. Pretend I was sad about something else in front of them. I didn't want them to know anything about this because they were four and nine. I told them I had to go home, that my Auntie Violet was dying. And they knew that that was true because she was very close to it. So I sent them back to the house knowing Bean was there. And I knew Robin and Michelle were there. So the boys would be okay. Mary Lou got me a flight home, but first, on the way to the airport, I asked her to drive me to Sally Grossman's house, where I wanted to talk to my backstabbing bandmate. When I met with her, I told her not to say a word, but to just listen and look at my face and look at my body. How careless, selfish acts affect people. Look at what you've done. Look. Look at what you've done. Mary Lou told the airlines, or I think it was Mary Lou told the airlines that there had been a death in my family. So that gave me leave to just be able to fall apart and cry in my plane seat. And everyone just gave me water and left me alone. One of the Sausalito moms picked me up and took me home from the airport, put me to bed, left lots of water and Gatorade by my bed. And I stayed there for a week, staying alive on Gatorade and water, just crawling or sometimes walking to the bathroom, trying to come to grips with my destroyed world. Todd called me the day after I got home. He had learned, as I had, that it was a setup that many people had been in on it. The people were not our real friends, had been part of helping the girl succeed on her mission to sleep with my husband, well, my boyfriend, Todd. Luckily, she hadn't. Luckily, my dream woke me up. Joel and Bibi were a part of planning this. They even had a title for the plan, Dethrone the Queen. That was supposed to be me. Todd never, never used being out of his mind on mushrooms as an excuse. He never used anything as an excuse. But I know he would never act that way otherwise. He was devastated that he hurt me and disgusted even more when he heard it was a plot with a title. He said he felt even worse when dozens of girls took their shot at being with him in the 48 hours since our undoing. Bean was one of the people that talked him down. She reminded him how much he meant, how much we meant to each other and encouraged him to call me. I told him I knew it was a mistake, but I needed to mourn alone until he came home, which was planned for a week later. In the meantime, I just tried to stay alive. The Sausalito Nurses School moms took turns bringing food, making me shower, making me comb my hair, changing my sheets, putting me back to bed. I couldn't believe how much a body and a brain could hurt. Then, three days later, the phone calls came in. The first was from a famous Presidio Hill School mom who had heard what had happened. She was married to a very famous rock star. 
and my nightmare had happened to her with the same woman. She told me to be sure to answer the phone for the next few days as she was going to ask other women to call me. One by one, wives of famous rock stars called to tell me of their husbands becoming fuck trophies of the same woman. They all said, it's her sick game to get the men. Sorry. It's, it doesn't sound possible that a person would do this. This sounds like a bad movie script, but they did say this person enjoys trophies, rock star men trophies, and torturing their wives. Each one, each wife told me the same sentence. Quote, she does this for sport. Don't let her win. One day, years later, I would be one of those wives calling another rock star's wife. Yeah, I would call a rock star's wife and after comforting her, would end with, yeah, comforting her about the same lady. She does this for sport. Don't let her win. And that's what they were saying. It was, I mean, ugh. I know about some of the things that happened to these women because of this person, and it's it's just sad. <sighs> okay, oh, the, the rock star's wife that I called, she's still together with her rock star husband, too. So a lot of us survived the, the game. Now, while trying to stay alive in bed, I started listening to Todd's music. You know, a walkathon with little headphones. Remember those? Yeah, I listened to his music, and that's something I hadn't done a ton of. I wanted to change the way I felt about him because I didn't want to be the victim of something he did to hurt me. I didn't want that. Now, I remember when I asked you all if there was a Todd song that changed your life? Well, that week, one hit me. I listened to it over and over. It's a song I even sang background vocals on, but, but I was hearing it differently now. The song was Fidelity. It was written after I had hurt him by being unfaithful years before. Now, I've seen online comments about there's a shot of me that Ed took while I'm watching Todd sing, getting ready to sing my background vocals in that song, and all the different comments. Of course, one woman said I looked mad. That was so wrong. You need to apologize to me. I did not look mad. What I was doing was looking at him, realizing I hurt that man that I love, and I will never get anywhere close to that again. I love him too much to ever ever know that I heard him. That's what that look was. Okay, getting back to to the song. I'm going to ask Joey, my producer, to play that song right now. 
and I want to see if you can guess the phrase that wiped away my grief, that wiped away everything and set me to resuming or restarting our lives again. There's the song is beautiful and there's one line that saved me and reset life. Okay, Joy, can you play it now? Thanks. Yes.
Oh man, that is such a beautiful song. It's a, it doesn't always have to be about fidelity. It can almost be about anything. Listening to it again just now, I realized that. But the one line that saved me is hearing his voice and saying, one day the glove is on the other hand. And this day, for me, that week, the glove was on the other hand. It was in my court. And, man, it sounds too cliched, but I, just like he said in the song, I realized I don't want to throw away my eternity. I have a chance to just start over. And we never mentioned it again. When he came home from Woodstock, I just pulled him into bed and we started over again. He forgave me once. Now I'm going to forgive him. And like I said, we never mentioned it again. We just started over and yeah. Ah. Uh. Thank God there's start over. Hey, I'm hoping that uh, none of you bring this story up to Todd. I mean, uh, it's almost like, in fact, I agreed not to read his book for years while he's working on it. You know, I would say, no, I'm not reading it. I want you to have freedom to do and say anything you want to say. It, in the tour bus, bus at one point, he handed it to me, the final thing, and said, read it through. And uh, tell me what you think. And I was like, whoa, shit, I don't know if I want to. But um, I told him I didn't ever want him to hear all this stuff. <laughs> so I trust you won't mention specific stories I talk about that might be sensitive. But feel free to talk about anything that's funny. And I promise on our next show we're going to get back to our format. Just that sometimes when I want to share something that's that special i didn't want to go hey and now we're gonna talk about this but still remember i told you about a song of todd's that changed my life and i told you how it did which line changed it so that i know there are things about todd's song that have songs that have touched you or changed you or made you think differently and i'd love to know about them remember you can email me at michellerengren at gmail.com you can record something on your iPhone and send it to me, and uh, I can play it on my show, which would be fun. Or if you don't know how to do that, you can just call 808 431 4881, and there are three minutes that you can record a question or what's your favorite song. And we're still doing Father's Day stories too. So um, in a couple of days, I'll have a fun announcement. Todd's going to do something wacky on his birthday, and you'll have a good time. I know you will. I will. <laughs> uh, thank you, Joey, for being my producer. Thank you for my family, for letting me tell stories about our lives. And thank you, Todd, for never listening to them. Aloha, Nui Aloha. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, thanks for listening to episode six. This is Joey, the trusty producer. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you rate this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Share it with your friends. We want to get those numbers up. Share it with people. Get it out there. Put it on your Facebook page. Go to the Facebook fan page, Michelle Rundgren Podcast. Go to the Instagram page, Michelle Rundgren Podcast. Uh, Make sure you tell everybody and get this podcast out there. Also, if you are interested in maybe advertising on this podcast, uh, you can get a hold of us. All of our information is in the show notes. We are exploring ideas about monetizing this thing and trying to get it to more people. So, yeah, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, Michelle. Aloha. Have a great week. Hug somebody. Thank you.